is our attitude towards alcohol changing? What's behind our often destructive and all-consuming relationship with alcohol? RNZ's investigations reporter Guy Espiner is with us now to talk about this issue, which he analyzes in depth in his new book out now, The Drinking Game. Kia ora, Guy, and thank you for being with us. Kia ora. And congratulations on the new book. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, it's been uh, quite exciting to, to see it out in, in the shops. It's one of those things that exists in your head for a long time and then exists in computer files. And so to share it with the, uh, the rest of the country and the rest of the world is pretty exciting. So why a book on booze, Guy? And I mean, I can partially answer that. I know you've over the years told us in the media about your, quote, battles, unquote. Yeah, I mean, if it were a cocktail, I suppose this would be one part memoir, one part history, <laughs> one part reporting, with perhaps a twist of advocacy on the top. Um, a, a lot of it's um, just hard-headed journalism, really. This isn't some sort of confessional uh, memoir, although there are some stories about that, because it's good to, to weave it in from your own experience. But um, there's a lot of reporting, and it's mainly a book of journalism, really. So I'm looking at how we got to where we are. What are the forces uh, that we are exposed to with advertising, with lobbying, with sports sponsorship? Why do the politicians never act when it comes to alcohol? And I was interested today to see, well, what was one of the things on the chopping block for the government as they prepare for election year? Well, of course, it was the reforms that they were promising with alcohol. They were looking at pricing. They were looking at the sports uh, sponsorship relationship with alcohol. And they were looking at a number of issues about whether local communities can set their own hours, which has been fiercely um, lobbied and litigated by the supermarket chains. Now, surprise, surprise, that's off the agenda in election year. And that's what we see as we trace back the history of alcohol in New Zealand. I, mean, I found the first thing that Parliament did, the very first thing in 1854 when it sat for the first time, was set a, uh, a law uh, allowing MPs to legally drink at Parliament, and uh, that sort of, you know, started as they've been to continued. And uh, so part of this was looking at that whole interface between the media, advertising, and politics, and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a few drinking stories in there, and a bit, a bit of my own experience, which sort of drives it along. But it's also a history of alcohol use in New Zealand. Is it the beverage that's a problem? Is it a person, or the people, or a combination? Well, it's it is none of those things, is it? Because it's 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 a drug, and that's that's really the thing that's hiding in plain sight that uh, no one ever talks about it. Um, so with other drugs, we say, oh yeah, well, it gets you high, but with alcohol, we 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 skip around all that with euphemisms. You've just called it a number of things which it isn't. It's, it's simply a drug, isn't it? And um, then we say, oh, well, it, it gets us socially lubricated. Well, yeah, that's just a posh way of saying that it does what other drugs do. And I think it's funny that we see it and um, we try to differentiate it from other drugs, even though the science and, and the tests will tell you it's the most da dangerous drug we have. And you always pause when you say that because it sounds like hyperbole or that someone's going to th say that you've exaggerated it. But that's what the studies tell us in terms of harm to the user and harm to society. Yet we don't treat it like that. And so that, that, this book also looks at why that is. And, and that, that, that's questions that go back hundreds and even thousands of years. And so I go a little bit into the anthropology of alcohol and how it was used as a creative and, and a building and a bonding tool and a tool of trust. And so 
you know, it's it's not a simple subject, and it's not that it's good or evil or that there's this person or there's that person. It's really just a, a look at how we've woven this drug so deeply into our lives that many of us feel frightened about doing without it i certainly did and and when you're told that it mixes with sport and it mixes with ballet and it mixes with marriage and divorce and births and deaths and every celebration or commiseration that you can imagine then possibly it's no wonder why we think that we can't ever have an occasion which doesn't uh, involve alcohol so i look at that too you know is our excessive drinking our fault or are we basically unwitting victims being preyed on. If so, does one's personal responsibility come in, Guyan? I think it does to some degree. But then, you know, all of these deep, powerful forces are a confluence of things, aren't they? Tobacco is a great example. It's a highly addictive. Uh, the nicotine is highly addictive. Then you layer on that, that um, you know, the habit-forming things. And then you layer upon that the marketing and the movies and it tells you how cool it is. Then suddenly you've got this incredibly powerful thing happening. No one likes their first cigarette. Very few people like their first taste of alcohol. Uh, you, you, you learn as an adult and you, you imbibe not only the substance but the whole media culture around it. To, to absorb this idea that it's so important for friendship. I mean, have you noticed that? That I mean, most of the advertising and the the pushing of this message will tell you that it's an incredibly important thing for bonding and for friendship and for romance and for adventure. Now, you imbibe those messages dozens of times a day. Um, so no, no wonder it's going to be deeply woven in there. So if uh, I mean, it's very hard to unpick how much of that is personal responsibility. On the, on the face of it, it is. But then, you know, if you allow this drug to be sold on every street corner um, in a vulnerable community, well, how much of that is a personal choice when people, um, you know, f f fall to that? So, yeah, it's, again, it's a pretty multi-pronged uh, issue, isn't it? Is the drinking age too low? Or are there other factors that come into it? Is it too easy to buy? Well, the World Health Organization will tell you that there are three main things that you can do, and the government ditched two of them today. They'll tell you, the, the experts, and, and I'm not one of them, but I've done a lot of research into it, that they'll tell you there's three, things, three main things you can do, and it's price, it's availability, and it's the sponsorship and marketing thing. So they just kicked the price and the sponsorship uh, to to the curb today, and and really they've um, really kicked the availability uh, to the curb as well. So they're, they're continuing in the grand tradition of New Zealand governments for for decades, if not centuries, of of not wanting to get between New Zealanders and their booze. And you, I don't know whether you'd remember or you've read, I mean, the, the famous Black Budget of Arnold Nordmeyer, we go back into that in the book, 1958, put the price of durries and tobacco and booze up and they got thumped in the election. It was a one-term Labour government. Um, and th those sorts of ghosts haunt, haunt governments. They don't want to do anything about it. Um, so, yeah, of course, I mean, the laws of supply and demand and the laws of economics will tell you if you make a drug highly available and you make it really cheap and at its cheapest you can get a standard drink for 68 cents if you buy cask wine which is the favoured drug 
of alcoholics and alcohol-dependent people is cask wine. It works out at about 68 cents a drink, which is about the price of a lollipop. Now, is that a factor in the amount people drink? Well, of course it is, which is why you've got minimum unit pricing in many countries like Ireland, Scotland and Wales and others. But again, that's been looked at here and has been discarded. Your own personal journey, as I mentioned earlier, you've made no secret of the fact that you basically used to drink maybe too much. Did you just go cold turkey one day, decide that's it? Yeah, I did. I did. I did one Sunday morning in mid-2019. I I didn't actually uh, mark the day down because I didn't want to be one of those scrape the the marks on the wall sort of prisoner sort of approach. So I just had decided that uh, that was it and um, I I had enough. I tried hundreds of times to mitigate. I don't know whether you or others you know have have done this where you've, you know, you've made this pact with yourself. I'm only going to drink low alcohol beer until 10 o'clock or and then I'll cut into the real stuff or I'll cut red wine out because that's been an issue for me or whatever it was or you know and I I, I was just someone who never had the off switch um, and so I could be merrily going along um, drinking happily along and then sort of wake up the next day and not remember anything past 10 o'clock at night and then that used to happen to me every six weeks or so, every couple of months. So, you know, not all the time, um, but but certainly enough to to give you shame and, and worry and anxiety and, and be unhappy with yourself. Um, and I think, you know, we don't have a lot of good words in the English language for it, and I'm happy to, to, to say that I was an alcoholic in that sense that I couldn't manage my alcohol well and it worried me and I felt it was damaging. And so, you know, if that helps other people think about their own drinking then then that's good i think we had this idea don't we that there's only there's a binary proposition you're either an alcoholic which means you're sort of you know in the gutter with a bottle of gin or, or you're a normal drinker which can be anything from oh i have a half a glass of wine a night to the sort of drinking that i was doing which is you know i was a disciplined alcoholic if you like i'd be three or four nights a week where i wouldn't drink on the nights that i did we'd massively cut into it and i did that from my mid-teenage years until my sort of mid to late 40s um so yeah i think there are a there's a big range of of, of people but around about 20 percent or close to a million new zealanders drink in a way that's damaging to themselves or to other people and when you've got those sorts of numbers, I think we need to talk, be a bit better at talking about it. Um, and that's part of the reason I've written this book. I had a close friend who I called my cousin. I always thought he was my cousin, but I guess family can be extended somewhat, who died six, seven years ago of alcohol poisoning, essentially. The sort of guy, he was probably on a bottle of um, the hard stuff every single day, would have a two or three glasses of wine at breakfast time and you never knew he was drunk just one of those sort of people that the persona was just absolutely normal didn't seem quite right wow yeah that's extraordinary i mean i wasn't in that position myself but as i say there's a huge range of people and and i'm sorry for 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 your loss that sounds pretty harrowing um in, in that sense so there are lots of different uh people and lots of different types of experiences. I suppose I wanted people to know that if they're worried about their drinking and it's worrying them, then that that is you know, right? You know, don't work to some sort of um, you know cliched image of what it looks like. There are tests you can do that the audit score, which is easily available on the internet, which will 
answer some questions you, you answer questions like you know have you how many times a month do you fail to do what's expected of you and those sorts of questions and you can do that to check it out if you're a little bit worried about whether you're sort of on the fence but my, my sort of rule of thumb is if you think you've got a problem you probably do and, and, it, and it, it it's if it's um if you're unhappy with it, then that's that's a, t- a time to look at it. Don't don't just wait until you think, uh, you know, that there is a rock bottom. Because uh, the other thing, the main point about my book is you can live a bloody great, rich life without alcohol. They tell you you need it. You don't. They tell you you need it for birthdays and parties and what will I do in this so- social situation. It's bullshit. Um, you, you can go in and have a, have a great life without alcohol. You, you don't necessarily need it. It's certainly not a plea for people to stop drinking this book. It's if, if, if you enjoy alcohol and, and use it well, then you know go for it. And that's there's no preaching in this book. It's a preach-free zone. But it does tell you that uh, you can have a great life without it. The book is The Drinking Game, How Big Business, the Media and Politicians Shape the Way You Drink. Guy and Espiner, congratulations. The book is out and it's available now? That's right. Um, and I encourage everyone to buy it. Yeah. Knock Prince Harry <laughs> off. my advance yeah, Knock Prince Harry off, <laughs> number right. one. Yeah, exactly. Who's yeah. that? Who's that? <laughs> thank you, Guy. Hey, thank you so much. A pleasure. Great to catch up with Guy and Espiner and his thoughts, as he knows.